0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the first lecture from the series The Weird and the Deep Weird by James B. Jordan. Listen to the entire James B. Jordan collection now on Canon Plus. For 45-minute to an hour lectures, I can't say all the stuff that's in this book. True New lines, Uh, which is sort of the topic that we have. So, uh, if what we're going to try to do is talk about the issues involved in this, uh, symbolic parts of the Bible, <clears throat> typological material that's in the Bible, and try to get ourselves thinking, uh, more biblically about this stuff, this weird stuff that's in the Bible. And the first lecture that I want to give tonight, we can actually title this lecture and call it The Weird and the Deeper Weird. Now, I am sometimes thought of as somebody that does pretty weird stuff in this area. And so I'd like to explain a little bit about how I got into studying these parts of the Bible and, uh, Maybe that'll help you to think about your your relationship to these parts of the Bible. My my Christian uh upbringing and education was largely in what we would call systematic theology. I knew all about the five points of Calvinism and the three aspects of predestin of predestination, providence and governance and concurrence and and I knew about uh, you know, the meanings of words like ex initiation and other things like that Not explained to you the various kinds of doctrines of the trinity that they've been uh put about in the history of the church and eschatological issues and the like but knowing systematic theology i found to be of precious little help when it came to reading the bible because the bible isn't written in that vocabulary it's not written in that style It's not written with those issues in mind directly. We construct our systematic and doctrinal theology by mining the Bible to answer questions that have arisen in the history of the church, like how many persons are there in God, and are they persons, and how do they relate, and all that. But there's no passage in the Bible that's written that way. No passage in the Bible says Whosoever would be saved, it first of all is necessary for him to believe the Catholic faith. And the Catholic faith is this that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. The Father Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. And yet they are not three incomprehensibles, but one incomprehensible. The Athanasian Creed is not found in the Bible. But the stuff that we use to build the Athanasian Creed is found in the Bible, okay? So I knew that fairly well. And I think most Christians who become begin to become educated in their deeper understanding of the Christian religion in the last couple of centuries have learned that kind of thing mainly. But as I say, it didn't help me much in reading the Bible. Uh, I'm more likely to read the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Arah, 652, the sons of Pehath-Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, who knows? Y'all don't y'all don't have that down? 1254. I could continue here in Nehemiah 7, but for some reason God thinks it's really important to have that in the Bible. Do you think it's really important? Be honest. I remember back in the old navigator days when I was in the navigators, we would read we would read and we'd come to something like this and we'd say, A list of hard names, and then we'd pick it up. You know, wherever the list of hard names stopped. Uh, that was easier than trying to trying to sound them out, figure out how to pronounce them. Well, you know, there are big hunks of the Bible that you have to skip. When well, people get into a Bible reading program and they say, I'm going to read through the Bible and it's going good. Until they get to the middle part of the book of Exodus. And then, man, you know, all this description of pieces of furniture, page after page. Sockets in the ground that gold covered boards are stuck into with rings halfway up and poles through the rings, and you're not quite sure exactly how the whole thing was put together. And think, well, let's get on over until Leviticus. <laughs> you think that's fun to read? Read the first half of Numbers. You know, you're about dead by the time you pick, pick up any kind of interesting story again um, in reading through the Bible. Well, <clears throat> You know, that's not because there's something wrong with the scripture. It's because our education doesn't prepare us to read and understand the Bible very well. It prepares us for other things that are part of the Christian religion as it's developed over the last thousand years, two thousand years. But it doesn't prepare us to read the Bible. We don't feel at home in it. So I looked for help. You know, I discovered that. I want to understand the Bible. Okay. For some reason, I have become convinced in college that the Bible was absolutely inerrant and without mistakes and it was an authority that was different from any other authority in life and that you have to make it absolutely primary and you have to submit your brain to the mind that's in the Bible. And you have to allow yourself to be continually changed by what you read in the Bible. I came to that having grown up in a more liberal kind of Christianity where we, just kind of, we accepted some things and we questioned others things. And I realized as a result of studying philosophy that there's no, you can't have it both ways. Either your brain is in charge of the Bible when you read it, and you decide what makes sense and what doesn't, or else the Bible is in charge of your brain, and your brain has to change if there's something in the Bible that you don't understand, because the Bible is just going to sit there continuing to be absolutely inerrant Word of God. So if there's something that you don't like or something you don't understand, the Bible's not going to change. And so you'll have to change. Well, I had I had come to understand that. But now the question was, what does the Bible say? And an awful lot of it was written in a language I couldn't understand. So I look for help. And there's, <clears throat> there's help with these kinds of passages in traditional commentaries. But a lot of times they don't go very far either. So they'll, they'll tell you, well, you're reading Leviticus chapter 11, and there's all these clean animals and unclean animals or more literally, animals that are clean for you to eat and animals that are unclean for you to eat. They're not unclean when they're roaming around outside, but they're unclean for you to eat. Like, you can eat beef if you're an Israelite, but you can't eat pork if you're an Israelite under the law. So... The commentators say, well, the unclean animals, they represent pagans or Gentiles. They may be God-fearing Gentiles. They're not circumcised. Uh, so that's that's what they represent. Well, that's helpful, but that doesn't answer the real question I want answered, which is why? Why would God divide the animal world up into clean and unclean? What's behind that? Why are things that move around in the water and have fins and scales clean and you can eat them, but if they're shrimpish, you can't? They have to have fins and scales. I mean, you can tell me that the finny scaly ones are like Israelites and the weird, grotesque looking lobster-like things, are like Gentiles, but you haven't really told me much when you say that. I want to know why. Why is it this way? Okay? And they, they don't, traditional ones don't give you very much there. What is the system of thought, what is the worldview that lies behind this? What is it that makes sense out of this system? What? What is there? What, why don't, when I read Leviticus 11, and it lists all these animals... And it tells me which are clean and which are unclean and why. You know the horse, although it chews the cud, it doesn't divide the hoof, so it's unclean. and it, it gives me all these specifics. and then it gets into the fish, and it doesn't say they are unclean. it says they're detestable. They're edible or detestable, so that shrimp aren't unclean, they're just detestable. And then when we get into birds, there's just a list of twenty unclean birds. And when we get to bugs, the bugs that hop around are clean and you can eat them like locusts. Makes me hungry to think about it. But roaches, you're know, not supposed to eat because they don't hop from place to place. Well, what, <clears throat> when I read that, I should think, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if I was thinking, if I really had the mind of Christ, If I was really in tune with the Bible, I'd say, "Oh, of course, yeah, sure, no problem." Instead, I'm looking at it, going, "Uh, "You know, these are these represent Gentiles and these represent Israelites." Well, fine, but I'm still saying, "Huh? Because why? You know, 50 verses in this chapter, going through all this. Maybe you don't care, but I care." I wanted to know, okay? And I wanted to understand also uh, why you have typology in the Bible where somebody does something in the Old Testament that's just like something that Jesus does, okay? David is driven out of the city of Jerusalem. He slowly walks across the brook, uh, Kidron, and people are yelling at him and throwing stones at him. He goes up the Mount of Olives And and is into exile. And there's all kinds of things there that look like Jesus' journey on Good Friday. Well, everybody admits that there's typology in the Bible. But why does it exist? And it seemed to me as I was reading the Bible that there were a lot of patterns that were repeating in the Bible. And not much attention paid to that either. They just, this is a type of Jesus. This is a type of Jesus. This almond, this olive tree over here is like Jesus. This, you know, uh, Isaac being offered as a sacrifice. He's like Jesus. Those little points of things instead of patterns. And I studied literature in college and I was aware of these things. I studied both music and literature and I'll come to that in a minute. But I was already set up in my brain to notice certain things in the Bible and to ask, what does it mean? So it's really my own existential, nice big fat word there, my own personal struggle to understand the Bible has led me into writing stuff like this. And I'm sure I don't have it all right, all correct. <clears throat> but now, before we go any further, let's take a passage and let's find some weird and some deep weird in it. That's Genesis chapter 32 and it's a common passage. And it's one that A lot of times we think we understand. In your uh, preaching, have you gotten to this yet? Okay. Then I won't be contradicting you. Oh, I see. We're slogging through Genesis. All right. Well, 18 years from now, when your pastor gets... uh, so this passage, he'll remind you of this. Okay, Genesis 32, verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of D- Jacob's thigh was dislocated whilst he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go for the dawn is breaking. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with me and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face. Yet my soul has been preserved. And the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel. And he was limping on his thigh. Now I think about that and think, hmm. Why wouldn't the angel tell him his name? Sudden not say Jacob says, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you asked my name and blessed him there? Well, you know, we can kind of figure that one out. That's systematic theology will help you here. Well, God is the namer. You know, we don't name him, he names us. Moses has the same kind of a thing. You know, Moses goes to God and says, I can't speak well. And God says, I'm telling you, you can speak well, Moses. No, 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 Lord, I'm I'm not a good speaker, Moses. I made you. I know what you can do, and what you can't do. I'm telling you, you can speak well. Moses says, you know, tell me the name. And he says, you know, I'm just going to give you this name. I am that I am. But I'm naming you, Moses. See, God's the one who names us. We don't name him. He's beyond naming in a way. Or if he does, he gives himself a name. He's not ready to say anything to Jacob. So we could we could reflect on that. That's OK more important question that seems a bit weird is, why does God bless him for winning the match? You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So he's fought with God and he's won. Now you would think, well, you fight with God and you win, you're going to go to hell. God says, you know, I've had enough of you. You fought me your whole life. So I'm tired of it. And so I'll let you go, Jacob. I give up. You're 99 years old, 97 years old. Been fighting me your whole life. You win. I'll see you when you die for a minute or two and then off you'll go. Well, no, that's not what it means. God says you've won the match. You have fought with me, with God, and you've won. So, we'll bless you. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Because we naturally think that this wrestling is about sin. God is wrestling with Jacob because Jacob is a sinner. And so God needs to win the match, right? That's what we believe in. That's certainly true. If God is wrestling with me over my sin, God needs to win. And I need to be broken. But that's not what's happening here at all. So we have to stop and look at it again and say, well, that must not be what it's about. What it's about is God is wrestling with Jacob to make him mature. The same way you get down on the floor and wrestle with your kids, make them strong, make them agile, put them through tough times, you know, put them in karate class, make them through the ag- do, go through the agony and torture of learning to play the piano and all the other brutal mean things that you make them do to make them grow up and become mature. Force them to mow that grass. Dry those dishes. All those other things. And God says, we've been wrestling for 97 years. I sent your daddy to wrestle with you, and I sent Esau to wrestle with you, and I sent Laban to wrestle with you. And now, you know, I've built you up, and your faith has been built up. You've learned to trust me and stop scheming all the time. And now, you're ready to move on into the land. So that's what this wrestling is about. This is a wrestling for maturity, but we have to kind of figure that out. It's not immediately obvious because when we read the text, we think it's wrestling about sin and it's not. It's wrestling to make him mature has to be because he's one, God says, you have grown up to the point where I've made myself this small, Jacob, and you've grown up to the point where we can fight and fight to a draw, And you're about to win. Of course, I could just pull out the old omnipotence card and blow you away, but I'm not <clears throat> doing it. So you're ready, man, and I'll bless you and you can go on into the land. Great. But now we move into the weird. Because God touched the socket of his thigh and the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated. And so God has blessed him and the sun rose upon him as he crossed over Peniel and he was limping on his thigh. There's something about this being struck in the socket of the thigh thing. And what is that about? Why didn't it say God slowed him down? What's the socket of the thigh? Well, we can answer that. The socket of the thigh is this, okay, inside your thigh. A little bit higher up than that, but we'll keep it PG rated here. All right, so that's that's where he struck. But what's that about? Why there? Why didn't God hit him on the shoulder? Why didn't he slap him across the top of the head? Why not in the heel? If Jacob is kind of like a messianic anticipation of Christ, why not bruise his heel so that he limps across? Why here? Now, you see, as I say, when I read this, I ought to say, oh, sure, of course. Where else? That's naturally where God would strike. But for some reason, my brain is not saying that, because I'm not in tune. Do you know? Why did God strike him there? What does it mean? Don't you care? Don't you want to know? Now that I've raised the issue, you'd like to know the answer, wouldn't you? Well, too bad. Well, I'll tell you, it, it's an extension of circumcision. See, circumcision is not that same part of the body, and that was for Abraham, and it kind of made Abraham a priest. Abraham grew up to be mature enough to be able to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, circumcision is extended, the same part of the body is struck And it's not just a temporary painful thing that heals up in a few days. This is a limb that he will have for the rest of his life because of a wound here, an abiding wound in the same location. This has to do with making Jacob into a kingly figure who can rule over 12 sons, uh, where Abraham, the circumcision of Abraham started this down Jacob has inherited the wisdom of Abraham and has taken to a further step, a further crippling. Up to this time in Jacob's life, he's been able to act. He's been able to run and fight and work and do whatever was necessary uh, to rule in whatever little kingdom God had given him, you know, to deal with his herds and flocks and other things that he would manage. Now he can't do that. He's going to have to learn to rule by words instead of by actions. His sons will have to do the work and he'll have to figure out ways to command them so that they obey. And that's why the narrative in Genesis shifts at this point to how the sons act and how Jacob, they don't obey him. Jacob can no longer do the actions himself. He has to use his, use language to persuade others. It's a shift in his life and it's a shift from, you know, it's a shift more into maturity because when you get older, when you get into your sixties or whatever, and you can no longer do the things that you used to be able to do, that's when you've got the most wisdom and if all these young people would just listen to you, you could help them out, okay? That's why we respect elders because we should listen to what they say They can't do it anymore. They don't have the physical power to fight or the other things that people have to do. But they have the wisdom. So this shift from action to wisdom is part of this. And the sign of it is this intensified form of circumcision. And that's in a line that moves from circumcision to this wound here to the full death of the person who is going to Emerge as God's ruler on the cross. Well, that's that's the weird part. But we didn't read all of it. I mean, we've kind of figured out this stuff. But now we come to the deep weird. Because it says, verse 32. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh. Because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Oh, certainly, of course, that makes perfect sense. I mean, there's there's obvious logic here. Here you are, you're a son of Israel, a descendant of Jacob and grandfather Jacob, was touched by God right here. And so when I kill a sheep and I have the leg, that, that muscle right there, I pull it out and I burn it up. I don't eat it. Because granddaddy was struck there. Does that makes sense to you? You know, it doesn't say God commanded them to do this. It says they figured out. The sons of Israel figured out that now from now on when they slaughter an animal, a goat or bull or even something else that they could eat. They shouldn't eat that muscle. Is that the way you think? Would you have logically come up with that? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I wouldn't have. And you know, when you're reading the Bible along and you come across stuff like this and you come across it more often than you're aware, I think, because we just kind of skip past it, you think. Well, I don't know what that means. We continue on. Let's get on to the next neat story of the Bible. Something's going on here. There's a a reasoning process involved here that is recorded for us. It's correct. It's a God-inspired reasoning process that's really strange to us. Well, that means that we have a problem, doesn't it? The Bible doesn't have a problem. God doesn't have a problem. We have a problem. We're not thinking right. We're not perceiving the world the right way. And of course, obviously, this is a symbolic matter because they're assuming some kind of a symbolic connection between the human body and the animal body and the human socket of the thigh and the sheep socket of the thigh. And if God touches the ancestor in the socket of the thigh, then somehow or other that's going to be reflected symbolically, sacramentally maybe even since it concerns eating. But symbolically, in the animal, it's as if God touched it, it, and we don't eat it. So in order for us to understand this, we would have to really start getting into a worldview where animals correspond to people in some important way. Of course, the Bible's full of that. How how can we learn from animals if they're not like us? Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, okay? That's because ants are like people in certain ways, okay? And lions are like people, and vultures are like people. God brought animals to Adam to name, so Adam could figure out that there were two of them and only one of him. And because animals are like people, he figured out there should be two of me too. He didn't say, well, they're animals. They come in pairs. They get married. I'm a man. I stand alone. That wasn't he reason. He reasoned from the analogy between animals to people. Well, here the analogy is made out very precisely. The muscle system in the human body is like the muscle system in an animal body something God touches is what? Holy? And so to respect that when we kill an animal, that part of it is considered holy and we set it aside? Is that important? Now, I'll be honest with you. I haven't got this one completely figured out yet. It certainly is the case for me that when I read this, I don't say, oh, of course, natural." That makes sense. But someday I will or someone will, you know, we'll get to the point where people are so thoroughly at home in the biblical worldview that when they read that they say, oh, yes, that makes sense. Naturally, I don't really need that verse to tell me that. I'd already know it. It'd be because it'd be so reasonable, don't you think? Hmm? If we really knew the Bible, this stuff would all make sense. So we don't. So this is the kind of thing that earlier on in my life, I noticed and I wanted to understand it. Now, I knew the only way to understand it was to think Bible, think biblically instead of thinking like a 20th century American. So how do you do that? You just have to study it. Now, the problem that I encountered in a lot of the, reading that was available to me at the time, which would have been 30 years ago, the reading that was available to me at the time, which would have been 30 years ago, is that I had studied literature and ancient literature in college. I'd also studied music and reading the Bible, I was noticing things that an awful lot of commentators didn't notice, commentaries. This is just an inside trade secret. I'll let you in on. We professionals buy Bible commentaries. And most of what the good Bible commentaries do is give you good word studies and good particular grammatical information about the Hebrew or the Greek of a passage. They are written by men who have PhDs in Northwest Semitic languages and the ancient Near East. And they bring all that expertise to the text of the Bible. And that's great. But the kind of person who can spend 10 years studying Ugaritic and Akkadian and poring over these documents and really learning Northwest Semitic languages and dealing with all these kinds of details, is not the kind of person who's likely to see bigger pictures. They tend to be what we call nuts and bolts guys instead of big picture guys. And they don't pick up the other kinds of things. So valuable as a lot of these commentaries were, they weren't answering the same question I was answering. Okay. Uh, but some scholars did. Uh, or at least were providing some help for it. Um one of the things that I knew from studying literature and ancient literature is that writing was very different before the last couple of hundred years. We are so used to books being everywhere that we don't understand that books were very rare until a couple of hundred years ago. Two things had to happen to make books common. The first was the invention of the printing press, to where you didn't have to copy things out by hand. Before that time, everything had to be copied out by hand. That made books rare and expensive. Sometimes Protestants complained, well, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, they had the Bible chained up in the church. Of course they did. You know how much a whole Bible was worth on eBay in the Middle Ages? Man, you just take that sucker out of the church one night and you're set up for life if you can sell it. Well, of course, they kept it chained in there. It was in there so people could see it, but it was chained up so they couldn't steal it. Well, something else had to happen before books became cheap, though. And that was for paper to become cheap. And Paper didn't become cheap till a couple of hundred years ago for that paper was very expensive. So even though you could print, and that brought the price down somewhat, you still, it was still expensive to have a book. That's why libraries were important and people borrowed books and the like. Well now, why did I go through all that? You know, nowadays when we write, we just write knowing that we can fill it out and it'll be printed if we look at these, if we look at a book, if you look at your Bible, you'll see that there's margins around the edges. There is space between words. And uh, if you go back a couple of 300 years ago and look at something written in English, published in English, you'll find it's much more smushed together, smaller margins. Sometimes letters are combined okay, to save space, to save so but why to save space now that in the ancient world if you want if you were going to write something you had to write it on a piece of tablet or something that was very expensive you didn't waste words and who knew how to write and who knew how to read most people didn't know how to write and read because why should they bother to learn? They're never going to read anything. They weren't going to have any books to read. No, nah, reading and writing, that was for a class of people who were called what? Scribes. And being a scribe was like having a Ph.D. in nuclear physics today. It was, it was a very skilled job. Scribes knew how to write in such a way as to Thoroughly maximize the space available. And in the ancient world, when you wrote, you didn't write the vowels in. And you didn't put any space between words. Because the other scribes knew how to read it. So you look at ancient Latin, ancient Greek. Sometimes you'll see the vowels in there. Ancient Hebrew, no vowels. Ancient Semitic languages, no vowels, and everything written, one after another. No capital letters and small letters, just a string of letters, no spaces between them, all consonants. And it's hard to read that unless you got your Ph.D. in scribal reading. Then you know what to read. You know how to figure it out. How this row of letters obviously falls out into these words. Now, part of that art of writing involved using literary structures to where you could say more than one thing, to use symbolic language that would do double duty. And all the ancient writers would do that kind of thing. They they wrote uh, in a very compressed style to where they could say a lot with a few words. The Bible is ancient literature. See, I knew from from my college years how ancient literature was written, the Bible being ancient literature, I was beginning to assume, and I'm not alone in this, you know, more and more scholars were beginning to say, you know, we need to treat this like an ancient text and assume that every single word counts. And... Every picture that's in the text counts, and it all counts together uh, because the writer didn't have a lot of space, and he was writing very carefully. Well, together with that is the fact that ancient literature and medieval literature is full of things like numerical symbolism. There are number structures. There are number structures all over the Bible, there are a number of structures in, in all ancient literature and in medieval literature. There are large parallel structures. There are chiastic devices and other literary devices where the text has parallels in it. There are references to the stars in all of this literature, St- symbolism of the, of the stars in the heavens, typological parallels. Modern literature isn't written this way. But ancient literature was. And medieval literature was. <clears throat> all the way down to the modern age. When it became much easier to write and get stuff printed. Now, you don't have to write that way. <coughs> in fact, if you do, people don't know how to read it. You know, we want things written kind of in a newspaper level. That's a newspaper articles are not written that way. It stands yes. out if somebody is uh, being clever and refers to Spider-Man as the Arachnet Avenger, okay? Saw that today, I thought, that's clever. But if the guy had been a whole lot more clever, he wouldn't have been writing a newspaper essay. He would have been writing something else, okay? So traditional conservative commentaries don't show much awareness of this. But having spent time in ancient literature, I could see that there was, there was probably in the Bible as well, and so I began to look for other, other scholars, well, for scholars, who talked about it. And they, and they do, although a lot of them are liberals. That's where the problem came. Liberals, because they aren't as stuck in tradition, can sometimes see things a little bit differently. But then those of us that are Bible believers have to say, yeah, but we can't follow you all the way because of your liberalism. Music is the same way, you know. Music is written with themes that recur and repeat. Uh, uh, If we were to talk about how a fugue is written or how any larger piece of music is written, you have a melody. The melody will be brought back in uh, maybe twice as slow or twice as fast. It might be brought in on top of itself so it starts in the soprano like a round three blind mice And then it comes in again, Three Blind Mice a little bit later and it's sung at the same time, but off from itself. You know what I'm talking about. These kinds of things show up in literary work as well. That's what all the typology in the Bible is. It's like melodies. Those same melodies can occur and take up a whole two or three book story, like the story from David all the way down to the destruction of the kingdom. Or it can, the same basic, Melody story can be in just a few years of a person's life. Uh, the story can be run kind of backwards so that it's, there's a creation or a decreation. There are passages that run through Genesis 1 backwards so that at the end everything is formless and void. Uh, showing decreation of the world. Those kinds of things are there. But, uh, I, I wasn't finding a, lot of, finding a lot of help until I began to rummage around and look at lots of other places and talk to other people. So, And I'm not trying to, to say that uh, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm just sharing with you why I got into this, why I think it's, it was important for me, because I couldn't understand the Bible. I could understand some parts of it, but big hunks of it, I couldn't understand. Big honks of it. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full James B. Jordan collection on Canon Plus.